Write that, write that down for me, Satan. Write that down for me, Satan. FightGameMedia.com. I am a staff writer over at F4W Online and WrestlingObserver.com. I am back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author and historian and broadcast journalist, sociologist, all those great things, Mr. Fumi Saito. All right, thank you for joining us once again. Today's episode kicks off our showcase series on the one and only Ultimo Dragon. He was the focus on today's show. Part one of his career today, Fumi and I went over his career from the time of him being this excited student from Nagoya around 16, showing off backflips and martial arts to a young Terry Funk while he was in Japan. We talked that to his come up in Mexico in the 90s, to his time in both WCW and WWE. Um, There's a lot to digest here. And this is the first part of our series. We'll continue next week talking Ultimo Dragon and the non-wrestling aspects of his career. So, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcast, like Spotify or Apple. And yeah, subscribe. It helps us out very much. Uh, Also, I have a book out on Amazon. It's a digital book called Stronger Than All. It's a digital match guide to all of the New Japan Strong matches of the first two years of the show. Without further ado, I'm as excited as you are. Let's get into the life and times of Ultimo Dragon. Grew up in, in Nagoya, so he watched all the matches in Nagoya. But uh, uh, when you have important matches in Tokyo, he would travel to Tokyo on bullet train or to take a Tokaido train, from, like an overnight train, into Tokyo, like six in the morning, and so you can be in Tokyo, then come to Tokyo. And then he had wrestling friends in Tokyo who, who, who he can stay with. Anyhow, that uh, if you remember the downstairs of Koraken Hall where the elevator is, and there's another escalator going up to Chinese restaurant. Um, you know, that the Korakan Hall building lobby, you know, right in front of three big elevators. Mm-hmm. That's where he met a lot of friends. I'm talking about Ultimo Dragon aside when he was 16 or 17. That uh, he used to show his wrestling friend all kinds backflip to moonsaults to handspring to whatever he watched on television, uh, TV the night before, either it was Tiger Mask or anybody, he can do the move today you know and that good you know like all the all the uh really innovative creative you know a new move that nobody has ever seen that the uh, tiger mask was doing he watched that on tv he could do it he had like a <laughs> photo recall like a oh crazy... yeah, natural gy- natural gymnast yeah did yeah. he have any yeah. sports background before he started to do pro wrestling uh well like high school sport junior high and high school sport yeah. Like baseball, uh, judo, soccer? Uh, the track. Oh, he's a track. Okay. Yeah. Oh. And then also in, in 10th grade, I believe he got the second degree, second degree black belt in judo. Wow. But the reason he learned judo was that he can 
play pro wrestling on on the tatami mat <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah yeah so the just like oh it's like you know even all the new japan guys or uwf guys or serious asia you know all japan every kid played pro wrestling on tatami mat in japan <laughs> i bet yeah just yeah, probably the like brain a, buster, the german suplex the yeah double arm suplex the, yeah you know in, in the states i i imagine most people practiced on the the living room sofa which is a lot more forgiving sure. than a tatami mat that's brutal yeah but uh yeah. in junior high in a gymnastic class you they teach you know like a, a quarter or or the semester of judo so you kind of don't know that the proper bump too you know that's judo true bump, the ukemi. I mean, yeah, yeah that is um i wonder how much more that factors into uh Japanese wrestlers Japanese background. kids doing it <laughs> I mean I guess you, you're teaching kids how to take bumps from a really early age in a really technical way too and in a way that works oh it, the whole concept of ukemi mm -hmm. yeah you the whole take the fall and perfectly. observe the shock yeah then it doesn't even hurt you know mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah maybe it had a lot to do with then the, you doing at home on your couch mm -hmm. well maybe <laughs> it built up some uh what's the word built up some Calloused. Tolerance? Yeah, tolerance. Yeah. yeah, pain tolerance. At least it yeah. falls. And the ukemi, uh, the concept, uh, you can believe that it's safe if you do it right. I, it you is. Know, tuck your head, yeah. Yeah, tuck your head in. You know, and, uh, you know, the, 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 tuck your head and see your belly button that the, you'll never, you know, hurt your back. I mean, hurt your back of your head. Something like that, you know. And roll it, you know, like rolling forward and observe the shock and get up. You know, you get up and uh yeah that has a lot to do with it anyhow that the uh, ultimate dragon as a kid was a super wrestling fan so he used to commute to tokyo you know that nobody asked you to do that right but uh he um he used to come to he was famous fan at the downstairs of this korakan hall in early 80s even this kid can do this flip and dive and uh moonsaults and all these things and he's showing off to other wrestling fans you know and he was also brave enough that uh, he goes to hotel and I mean, hoping to meet you know your superstar. And he did go to Satoru Sayama, the original Tiger Mask's hotel room. Knock, knock, knock. I want to meet, right? Remember, it's like a, <laughs> a lot of wrestling fans would do that, and the wrestling wrestlers no, normally don't respond. But uh, knock, knock, and uh, he wanted to show Sayama what he can do in the hotel hallway, you know, and then. Uh, Look, I can do all these, you know, all your moves, you know, and uh, graduate high school and be wrestler. And he was, you know, like encouraged. And original Tiger Mask Satoru Sayama gave him his trunks. Isn't that nice? Mm. Mask is on thing, innocent. but uh, you know, ultimately, yeah? oh, innocent, yeah. oh, completely innocent, yeah. Because he was still uh, so much younger than most of the wrestlers that most wrestlers would at least start training after high school. Right, right. But, and he was. Oh, already... he knew what he wanted to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he was pretty fearless too to introduce himself to big stars without oh very fearless without yeah. thinking well, too much. Oh, you should say fearless or brave, fearless. <laughs> very brave. Yeah, it's and it's not no, go... it's not ordinary, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Well, a lot of kids did that though, you know, to to get the mask from you know, Mel Maskers or get the autograph from Stan Hansen or somebody. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But that yeah, a lot of fans did that, and that's very Japanese fans you know, type of behavior too. And as young Asai went to Terry Funk's room too. Knock, knock, knock. You want to meet Terry Funk, right? And he, you know, 
in order to introduce himself that uh, he showed Terry Funk all kinds backflip to front flip to cartwheel to do you know, all kinds of things on the hallway. You know, then Terry Funk was so impressed that the, why don't you come back tomorrow? I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring Dory in too. Dory Funk Jr., older brother. So next day he shows up again. Then uh, do, both Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk, okay, let's see what this kid can do. Then they did all, uh, all these flipping dives and then, and, and, you know, backflip to cartwheel, the whole thing, and hallway again. So they were so impressed. And they remembered, aside from it, like 10 years, 20 years later, oh, that was him. Isn't that an interesting tale? Wow. And it's amazing that Terry Funk saw something extra in him, just enough to say something to his brother. He always seemed to have like a good eye for upcoming talent. Yeah, it's like, well, we just discovered a talent, you know, or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was like a very early stage of uh, Yoshihiro Asai in meeting original Tiger Mask Satoru Sayama and Dory and Terry, the Funks, and probably met a lot of other wrestlers too. And these are the two tales that's so famous that I was told you know, a number of times in first hand. And now that the Ultimate Dragon is so hum- humble and it's modest, that ah, I don't remember that, right? <laughs> but <laughs> of course. Uh, a lot of people do remember. And, it's just, and to, in, just to be clear, this was when the Funks were in Japan or was this when they were in yeah, Texas? They were in Japan, yeah? No, no they were in Japan, yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, they used to come five, six you know, times a year. You know? Sure. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew what hotel they were staying. And Terry Funk, Dory Funk, both so nice that the, that the lot of fans are waiting them at the hotel lobby, right? And the Funks were the ones they they autograph and take pictures, you know, each and every one of them until the very last one. Then mm-hmm. the wow, oh, super baby face, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do that with Abby and Sheik. No way, <laughs> they'll chase you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, it's fun to be chased too, you know. Like, ah! <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I heard, I've heard your story and I've read about other good memories that people have had getting chased by... Oh, I got by chased by Abby, and Abby. My, me and my body laughed so much. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was greatest, you know. Yeah, you, you run for life, I mean, you get so scared. And then five minutes after that, we laughed so hard, it was so great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so that was Dragon like, was like guys. one of those uh, types of fans who, who super fans. got that super rush, fans. Yeah. got the pa- had the passion for it like that. Hmm. Oh yeah, oh still does, you know, like 35 almost 38 40, almost 40 years later in, in his home in Mexico, you know, in Mexico that he has that the four male maskers costume all, all kinds of antique championship belts from 50s and 60s and uh yeah he has his own memorabilia like his own personal museum at home did you know that i didn't know that no oh he's a collector for old old championship belt that, that he discovers it sometimes it's in somebody's some old dresser's closet or you know some famous wrestler's widow had it in a house and didn't know what to do about it and ultimate dragon want to buy it you know and then he hmm. you know i'm gonna buy this championship belt from you and he wanted to buy all kind of things that he is like he still is this like he has this super you know fan mentality not a mentality but he's like a just just mindset that hasn't changed since he was a kid which is great he still cares about it he still cares about it very much 
Oh yeah, he has that that uh, museum of masks. Not the ultimate dragon mask, but the, you have Santo and El Santo mask, Mil Mascas mask, that uh, El Solitario mask, or the mask that uh, you know Mascara contra Mascara that somebody loses mask, right? That you cannot, you can no longer wear, so that the mask guy, the name doesn't exist anymore, so it becomes antique. Then he grabs the mask and can I have it? You know. And uh, he has this ripped up mask as a, as a, I mean, true antique. Yeah. And I don't even know how many, there's a I mean, real classic memorabilia he has in his home. That uh, Rossi's been there, you know, he's seen it all. Rossi's also like that too. He has a lot of stuff in his house, you know? Yeah. They're kind of like curators. Yeah. Not that I don't have much in my house either, but uh, yeah, right. And uh, and uh, it was it was nineteen uh, either end of ninety uh, eighty uh, summer of eighty six or early eighty seven that I, I actually I met Asai uh, before his debut. It was I think it was like summer of eighty six because spring of eighty seven he left Japan and debuted in May of eighty seven. So he had had to be sometime summer in eighty six. I was in assignment to do the big interview for the magazine called Deluxe Pro Wrestling, the mm-hmm. monthly magazine uh, that, that went out of business, you know, uh, because the weekly pro wrestling got so big that the, the monthly one got slowed down. But the, we still had the Deluxe Pro Wrestling, and I went to interview then-rookie Chris Benoit. Ooh. At the time, the three Americans were in, in New Japan Dojo. Young Chris Benoit and young Daryl Peterson. Later on, he was Man Mountain Rock. Mm-hmm. Then young Brian Adams. Mm-hmm. Later on, he became Crush. Right. Crush. Yep. And at the yeah, at the at the, and then I went to interview uh, Chris Benoit, rookie. Then Chris Benoit, like a nineteen-year-old Chris Benoit, and uh, he had you know he wanted to open a bank account in Ginza. So we took, tra- you know, subway and trains into the city from dojo and Asai came along. Hmm. Yeah. Because no, you, you need another wrestler, right? Like, I mean, doing an interview, I'm doing an interview and I brought my photographers mm-hmm. and uh, the, Chris wanted to bring Asai along and he came with, you know, you know, with us and not my not knowing how big of a star he would become, right? Of course. I mean, either of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Young Chris Benoit. Yeah. Rookie. First year. But the, uh, uh, we were interested in, in you know, like a foreign international rookie that uh, that, that they're going through New Japan dojo training, of all things. You know, I mean, a lot of the Japanese rookie and trainees, they, they don't last, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, young Benoit, uh, Daryl Peterson, Brian Adams, they didn't complain. And they went through the same amount of training every single Japanese training uh, going through. And they were tough guys, too. And uh, Asai went through the guys. oh big guys yeah but the Benoit was small too was not mm-hmm. a, not big guy yeah and Asai went through the you know the, the dojo training too and uh, he told me that time that Asai told me that that the, uh, he, he couldn't debut in, with New Japan because he was told that he's too small to be a wrestler at the time you know a wrestler um, had to be big guy right mm-hmm. Asai what five six five seven tops. Five six, I think, uh, closer to that. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. not yeah. tall. Right, he wasn't big. wasn't a big dude. 
Right, right. Uh, super talented. Super I mean, talented. especially compared and, to Crush and Man Mountain Rock. I mean, he's he's very talented compared <laughs> to those dudes. Yeah, but the dojo there still had Liger, the, the Hashimoto, Chono. The, the, Muto was already in Florida, I believe, at the time. But uh, Nogami, the, the young Funaki, that uh, oh, all kinds of later on superstar, they were still in dojo as young lions. I mean, the list of names that the, the young lions at the time, each and every one of them became somebody later on. But Asai was in there. And uh, he told me that uh, he couldn't debut in New Japan, that he's going to Mexico or, or, you know, on his own. And uh, he's saving money and he's going to Mexico soon. Wow, good luck, right? But at the, you know, because in 1986, you know, that the perception of Lucha Libre and the Mexican wrestling, yeah, New Japan, Old Japan, both had America. I mean, the Mexican wrestlers, Mexican superstars at the time, Mil Maskers and his brother Dos Caras, uh, you know, to be the biggest name. But uh, if you think about it, Mil Maskers is a giant in Mexican wrestling. Giant meaning like a heavyweight. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Bigger than a like lot of heavyweight. Yeah. Yeah, heavyweight wrestlers. And the ones, you know, the Mexican superstars, the ones who came to Japan was all heavyweight, like El Solitario, the Kanek, that uh, Fishman, or in small, smaller scale, Ultraman, a uh, lot of the rest. Opero Aguayo was uh, light heavyweight, but uh, most of the Mexican wrestlers who, who came to Japan was already, that there was a heavyweight division. I mean, so you blend in well with other heavyweights in, in mm. Japan, right? Mm. And that's how we you know, thought the Mexican wrestlers were and, and how big the star, the connect, the fishman and all these people were, but they weren't exactly headlining in Japan. And we didn't really have the big picture of Mexican wrestling. The real Lucha Libre is like you, the middleweight in welterweight in light heavyweight, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Smaller wrestlers were the actual big, big, huge stars. See, Mill Maskers, heavyweight international superstar who went to America and made made make an American type of you know to guarantee money. He is Mill Maskers always been exception, you know. And in Mexico, the majority of wrestlers are smaller. We didn't know that, you know. You know the El Santo, small guy, right? Sangrech Canada, that uh, all these people were like uh, middleweights, and at the time, Japanese fan, including myself, then that hadn't seen the real middleweight luchadors and what they can do. So um, the Mexican superstars in mid '80s weren't really, you know, thought of uh, like a big deal, you know, meaning like the male maskers, those guys connect uh, exception, but they were heavyweights back home. And the, if you talk about real lucha, luchadors and lucha libres that uh, you have to really study, watch middleweights, you know, the smaller guys, that's the real lucha libre that we didn't know about. And Asai knew about it, but, uh, we were all going like, Asai, okay, good luck. You're going to Mexico. That's great. You know, hope you make it, right? That kind of thing. In May of 87, he actually debuted in Mexico with another wrestler, you know, New, two, two other uh, New Japan wrestler, Naoki Sano and, and uh, uh, Hata. Yeah, Hirokazu, Hirokazu Hata. He retired. 
But uh, Sano, you know, the later on, the, the Liger's big rival, Sano, mm. he and Hata and uh, unknown, then then unknown rookie Yoshihiro Asai debuted in, in Mexico together as a trio. And Asai was the one who actually became, you know, much bigger star in Mexico than any other two. Yeah, not to take anything away from Sano, he came back to Japan and beat Liger to be IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. And later on, you know, Sano, Sano went to SWS, uh, All Japan, NOR, oh, UWFI too. It's a very interesting career. But Asai, uh, that he didn't even debut in Japan. He went straight to Mexico after New Japan training, of course. And what's interesting about the Mexican wrestling is that the, you have to be actually licensed. You know, they're very strict about professional license. Whereas Japan and America, neither country have like li professional license like the boxing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, with some training or, or some independent guy with zero training, you can go in the ring and have a match. You know, that's right. pretty liberal and free. But uh, in Mexico, it's interesting that uh, you have to be licensed you know, professionally, you know, uh, to, to be able to, you know, be in the ring. And every single luchadors are professionally licensed. He got his, Asai himself got his first professional license in Mexico. That's what I'm talking about. In Mexico, that the wrestlers, luchadors are professional, you know, has a license. Therefore, you cannot change your ring name uh, on your own. You know, you have to really apply and get the approval. Or that you cannot change your design or, or, or the mask or, you know, the theme of costume or copy somebody else's mask and, and uh, ring name. They're very, very strict about that. Did you know that? I knew a little bit of that, but I didn't know the specifics. And there was nothing like that yeah. in Japan, right? Yeah, because, well, that is like up to your own dignity that, uh, you know, in... in if 85% of the wrestlers are costume masked wrestlers that people start copying somebody's costume and, you know, pretending to be them, right? Mm -hmm. Somehow. But you cannot do that in Mexico. And also, it had a lot to do with that the Mexican Lucha Libre landscape that so many wrestlers are coming from wrestling family, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your father, your grandpa, your uncle and your cousins, you know, your brothers or wrestlers, they keep their family legacy and family wear similar costume and similar uh, outfit. You know, like a blue demon family that, uh, sure. uh, yeah. Oh, Mel Maskers, Dos Caras and Shkoderiko and, and uh, Dos Caras Jr., Shkoderiko Jr., they are the ones who are allowed to... Uh, wear similar or, or that the matching costume and the matching ring names, you know, that, uh, yeah, what's the, that the big family. Yeah. There's so many family in Mexico that, uh, that you are, uh, supposed to keep your family name and legacy and the ring names alike and, and, uh, yeah, images and, uh, costume, ring name, all those things. So that's protected. Anyhow, that the Asai, uh, without the mask, okay? Without the, without the Ultimate Dragon mask, that doesn't come in play till like 92, 93, mm -hmm. when, he, when he was signed with Triple A. He debuted in UWA, now defunct, 
you know, at the time Mexico oh, was like either uh, EMLL, now it's CMLL, right? But the uh, Impresa, they call it. EMLL or UWA, two big promotion and bunch of independent. He was signed under UWA. And uh, he had three uh, run as just his Yoshihiro Asai was ninja costume. And three years later, 1990, he came back and debuted in Japan with Universal Pro Wrestling that uh, Shinma Jr. was running, that uh, very first lucha, uh, complete, perfect, I mean, genuine Mexican lucha libre company in Japan. And he brought in people like El Santo, that the Katakunri, that the Kendo, that the, of course, Grand Hammer that was with them, but uh, a lot of the, oh, Sper Astoro, yeah. Genuine Mexican middleweight talent, welterweight talent came to Japan, the whole bunch of them. They wrestled against one another. Therefore, it's not against Mexican wrestlers, against Japanese wrestlers, and there's a, clash of you know, in styles or anything like that. It was Mexican uh, against Mexican or the, the Japanese luchador like Asai or Grand Hamada and and the likes. And <clears throat> you have genuine lucha libre style. And then, then uh, it was eye-opening for Japanese audience. And uh, 1990, you have to realize there's a New Japan, there's Old Japan, and there's UWF boom. You know that the the group, you know Maeda, Takada, the, you know Fujiwara, the Minoru Suzuki, the Funaki, that, that they were trying to, ch you know, change wrestling into legitimate contest. The whole concept, you know, it was a big boom. It was like the, the Asai's lucha, you know, lucha libre company Universal was like a complete way in the other side of the whole spectrum. Are you following me? Hmm. The same fan though, same wrestling fan will watch. UWF, you know, <clears throat> like a shoot style UWF one week. Next weekend, you'll be watching Luchador. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was that and the FMW, FMW was the other match, alternative. Right. Yeah, but they were, like yeah. you said, it was so far removed from the the big three, I guess you could call them back then with the UWF and All Japan and New Japan. Um Style-wise, yeah, was, the New Japan, Old Japan, the, uh, the big, you know, big league, major league establishment, then going anywhere, right? Mm. And uh, people believed so much in Akira Maeda's, you know, like a revolutionizing wrestling that the, this is a guy who's gonna change wrestling into MMA. Not a, there's no such term as MMA then, but uh, make professional wrestling professional wrestling. And uh, at the same time, it was like really. Uh, refreshing isn't the word. It's more like a shock factor, or, or like, a, well, I like this these too. Like Mexican style was no argument on the content, or you know, or, I mean, like what they're you know, what they're showing. It just if you got you know, if you want to understand lucha libre, you just sit and and watch lucha libre and uh, wow this is a real lucha libre and then and, and people thought male maskers and watching those characters the connect was mexican style no they were mexican heavyweight if you want to watch real mexican style genuine lucha libre it had to be d these you know middleweight welterweight guys doing six-man tag team the six-man tag team matches like uh, your basic style of your lucha libre and uh, yeah, it's just uh, 
And if you knew in Mexico, there's a rule that the one guy, you know, walk out of you know, the roll out of the ring without tagging, second person can come in. You have to get watched and you have to get used to it almost. Do you know what I'm saying? It's very uh, loose compared with the American style or style in Japan. Yeah, kind of. but that's a Mexican style that the one guy rolled out of the ring and another, you know, second, you know, the next person come in and, and you're the legal guy in the ring. Yeah. But uh, Asai, uh, that the moves he introduced was, of course, that the, he was able to do what original Tiger Mask was doing uh, a few years back. On top of that, that Asai was introducing the wrestling, I mean, arrow moves, you know, the flying moves that, the, that we haven't seen, you know, that the, the crossbody from your back, or, you know, mm-hmm. and of all things, of course, that the, they named after him Asai Moonsau. Now sure. that a lot, a lot, a lot of wrestlers do a lot, Kebrada, it's no big deal. Well, it's a big deal, but the, the, the first person to be doing that is, is a, the, the, the move should be named after him. And sure enough, it's Asai Moonsau worldwide, huh? I mean, without knowing who Yoshihiro Asai was, the name is Asai Moonsau. Jim Ross even say that. Hmm. Yeah, it's just a, it's one of the moves. Uh, he also incorporated a lot of martial arts type uh, wrestling into his kind of like. Uh, oh, I mean, kicking and stuff. Yeah, like Sayama did. Yeah, yeah, because Sayama was, and everybody else in the, the, the every kid that grew up in the era was a big Bruce Lee fan. Mm. Can't help it, you know. Yeah. I was big Bruce Lee fan. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, one you know, a lot of Japanese fans who grew up in seventies had this you know internal <laughs> question, you know, should I choose wrestling or should I choose Bruce Lee? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to; you can like both, right? <laughs> it's funny you go to the merchandise shops in Japan, and there's always a Bruce Lee section. There's always Bruce. I mean, yeah, even wrestling some, store. Yeah, yeah. There's there's an overlap. Fans overlap, sure. and also we realize that uh, by the time you fell in love with Bruce Lee, he was gone. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah, and he only made what four, five feature. You know his typical Bruce Lee fight movie, and he was gone. You know, so mm. you have to, you know, keep watching these f- same five movies over and over and over, like I have. You know, but uh, yeah, so. We sidetracked a little bit, but the Bruce Lee influence was clearly there. Yeah. Kicking, mm-hmm. the rolling sabat, spinning heel kick, all these things, of course. Yeah. And you can do those things in in, in Lucha Libre environment. And as I did just that. And he had the ninja costume, much like, like a lot of the Kung Fu fighter almost. Then he brought in people like Kendo, the Kato Kunri, that, that, that really complements his style, you know, like the uh, Kato Kunri and uh, uh, Kendo. They, they were doing Oriental style. They were Mexican, but the, their gimmick were like Oriental heroes, you know. And, and, and yeah, it worked. And he brought El Santo, you know, for the, you know, the real El Santo from Mexico for the, for the first time. And we were able to witness the real genuine what they call a Estoraja, uh, the superstars from Mexico. It was a in- very, very interesting company. Then also that Universal oh, that, that only lasted, what, three years altogether and then went out of business. But that Universal 
had a lot of interesting rookies like Jado Gedo, right? Today's Jado Gedo, mm-hmm. Great Sasuke, Super Dolphin, WWE Funaki, Shinzaki Jinsei, uh, Hakushi, and Takamichi Noku, uh, Kazuhayashi. They're all there. Very interesting company, huh? The early, the first Japanese luchador group. Yeah, and also they could have gone to New Japan Dojo. They are all talented people. They could have gone to Old Japan Dojo. In fact, Gedo, right out of high school, went to Old Japan Dojo. He wanted to join, and that uh, Yoshinari Ogawa said, "You know, go to the office and, and submit the resume. Not here. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't come to Dojo." Uh... <laughs> but anyhow, yeah. Anyhow, that. Uh, these guys tried. Oh, the WWE Funaki, he was with uh, old Japan, uh, New Japan, you know, for like six months. He hurt both knees, and the, then coach Hiroshi Hase told him to go to the hospital and get, get, you know, fix it, then come back. Then uh, in, instead, he he, uh, he went to uh, Fujiwara Gumi. Yeah. Anyhow, that uh, right, Funaki wasn't the universal, and then he went to Fujiwara Gumi. Taka Michinoku was there, I'm talking about. Sorry about that. Taka as a rookie, and also he was carrying uh, great Sasuke's costume, you know, that came, both came from Iwate. And all these people were there as rookie, you know, then coached under, you know, the, the real Lucha, you know, Lucha Libre superstars from Mexico and was coached by Grand Hamada and also was lectured by young Asai. Isn't that interesting? It's, I guess you could say it's unprecedented. It's it's definitely the first in the, in this kind of movement or the system that is still a big part of Japanese wrestling today. That n- not only the learning the lucha, the proper lucha technique, but actually going to Mexico and incorporating into into the main style over in Japan. I mean, a lot of New Japan stars, they're very lucha libre inspired. Now, gen- yeah, generations later, and that. Uh, the version of Universal Pro Wrestling, the young Jado and Gedo as a, as a Boda KT and Kuri Shoji, uh, they were sent to Mexico. And ultimate, uh, the, the Super Dolphin, Spell Dolphin, he was sent to Mexico. Grace Suke, then uh, Masa Michinoku, right? Uh, he went to Mexico and became Grace Suke and came back as Grace Suke. And he's been wearing that same mask ever since. So Ultimate Dragon was uh, that uh, responsible for those, you know, that the later on superstars and influential figure in professional wrestling, that the Ultimate Dragon, not the Ultimate Dragon, but the young, what, the 23-year-old Yoshihiro Asai was very, very influential in that and responsible. And also, he wasn't trained at the time, but uh, it was young Tajiri, who was still in college, uh, that the Universal came to Fukuoka, that uh, the Tajiri's hometown, he watched Asai and decided, I'm going to be a wrestler. Oh, wow, hmm. right? Yeah, watching Asai, I, I want to be like him. And that was the day Tajiri decided to become a professional wrestler. So there's like, he touched a lot of people's life here, here, and there, here, and there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, and I think that yeah. I'm sure people have very similar stories coming from the stage because of his time, a little after the time we're talking about, he was often on television for WCW. I mean, that's where I first saw right. him. 
Yeah, so Universal, he was with Universal 1990, Asai I'm talking about, mm-hmm. 1990 and 1991. Then Tenruz Estavion was formed. He was recruited into a bigger contract and he was signed you know, was SWS. Well, they couldn't blame him because they were offering big, big guarantee, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, up until then, aside the story is great, but in all the actuality, he never made all that much money going, I mean, going through New Japan Dojo. Um, he went and going Mexico on his own and a few, few dollars in his pocket and made it for three years and came back with Universal, rather small independent situation that, uh, that this independent company that, that the, the, the shows were great, but the, they weren't making huge money either. And SWS came into picture that he was signed right away. Then that was at the time that the third third big major company in Mexico started. It's triple uh, A that exists today. In in Spanish, Toripre A, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when he became Ultima Dragon. 91, 92? Yeah. That uh, no more Yoshihiro Asai in Mexico. He was Ultima Dragon, like Ultimate Dragon, right? Or last dragon. Yeah, yeah. Then he was a star. So that's when he started traveling back and forth, back and forth, in honoring his schedule in Triple A in Mexico. Then half the year he was in Japan with either SWS and later on Tenru's spin-off, WAR. It was uh, with WAR that he put on the second Super J Cup. <clears throat> right, right, right. And also was responsible of, if if, if you remember, uh, the unifying eight junior heavyweight championship in one belt. Of course, you know, the J Crown. Yeah, yeah that the WAR junior heavyweight to title to IWGP junior heavyweight title to NWA junior heavyweight title to national junior heavyweight title to whatnot, right? That the, all eight ju- existing junior heavyweight title into one. Uh, kind of didn't last all that long because it's political. But uh, he did that in in Japan, and also uh, during this WAR Tenru's WAR time, Ultimate Dragon also was responsible to bring in young Rey Mysterio Jr. and Shikoshis into Japan. So he was the yeah. the first to make him international, or was he already doing ECW by then? <clears throat> Um, before WCW, I believe. Hmm. So he, yeah, he brought yeah. over uh, Ray Junior. Psychosis. Yeah, that would lead uh, them into ECW, then to WCW. See, ECW was always, you know, Paul Heyman and his guys were always studying Japanese tapes, right? What they watched in Japanese recent Japanese videotapes, VHS day, way before the internet. You know, I mean, all the all the listeners out there, you know, can't assume there was an internet. No, there was no such internet thing as the internet. Therefore, there's no YouTube or TikTok or nothing like that. And uh, it was a tape trading time, you know, 90s. You know, you have to wait for your package to come into your home from your pen pals overseas. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Oh, I remember those times. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so he was responsible for bringing in Ray Mysterio Jr. at the time, Ray Mysterio and Scorsese and, and a few other, or 
the, the legend Negro Casas uh, to Japan and uh, had them do the genuine Lucha Libre style in Japan. And also, you can't, uh, uh, can't miss this one, that he was uh, responsible for bringing in uh, Chris Jericho to Japan. Asai was. Because young Chris Jericho. They had a relationship down in Mexico first, right? Yeah. And as talented as Chris Jericho was, that he was struggling, you know, because there was no territory in America. You know, if he was 70s and into early 80s, there's like a 15 different territory you can, you know, travel and work for. But this isn't just WWF and WCW and a little bit of ECW and small uh, independents. And Chris Jericho and Lance Storm together, they tried like Smoky Mountain wrestling Jim, Jim Cornette's company, and that went out of business. They had to go to Mexico. They went to FMW a little bit, and uh, yeah, they were like the people struggling, you know, you know, to find place to work. And Ultimate Dragon helped young Chris Jericho, so he touched his life too. So he was already he was an important. Not just a wrestler, he was important as a, as a figure in wrestling, and he was still probably you could say in his prime. But but the, I don't think prime. he really meant to you know to be the uh, liaison or promoter about it. It just find talented guy working in the same show, and you spot these guys in, at the building. So oh, this these guys are really talented, you know, and they're friends. And they go, do you want to come to Japan? Or do you want to go to here and there? It's just, it's just kind of helping, just like he was helped when he was rookie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's not business. I don't think he made a lot of money. You know, doing. I mean, not a lot, but just. I don't think he made any money doing. You know, introducing your your friends, your you know, wrestling friends to other companies. It's just camaraderie, sort of. Hmm. Does that make good sense? Deed. Yeah, just a good deed. Because he's yeah, because they were have a good reputation. Um, yeah, yeah. What they have in common, they are not six to two hundred fifty pound heavyweight wrestlers. Uh, they're all you know, relatively small, but very very talented guy. And other you know promoters out there would probably you know overlook. Yeah. So only wrestlers can see the raw talent in these rookies, and he knew you know who who are talented. Yeah. So it was like that. It was like that. Then he, after, during this WAR time, that uh, he was signed with WCW in 1997. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Monday Nitro became two hour show to three hour show. Remember? Around 98, 97 ish. Sure. Two hour show. Yeah. Every kid, not every kid, but the, the, every wrestling fan in America at the time, probably including yourself, you know. Of course, in, absolutely. Every Monday night, you watch both channels, right? You know, it was at a point from 98, 99, even in 2000, where, of course, to answer your question, you're watching TV on Monday, but there was wrestling on every single night on cable television at around this time. That too, either, right. Either right. indie <clears throat> stuff, uh, uh reruns of other promotion there was always something i think wrestling in, in my lifetime that was probably at its most popular mainstream wise right and the cable channel i mean you got so many channels that you you have to find wrestling you mm-hmm. know but the monday night a lot of people are <clears throat> flipping channels because you want to watch live if you waited until like 11 o'clock you know that the nitro comes again 
if you remember. Of course, yeah, the uh, the uh, the replay. The replay yeah, would play yeah. afterwards. So you can actually watch both shows. But at the, between 8 to 10, you flip channels, you know, to Raw, to Nitro, Nitro to Raw, and what's on next. And uh, uh, every week they had like a portion of Lucha, Lucha Libre on Nitro, if, if you remember. It was always the guys, most exciting uh, hour of broadcast usually within actual wrestling yes yeah actual wrestling and always be they present different uh stars not just japanese or mexican stars but you know stars from the states and stars that you wouldn't see otherwise yeah for the new newcomers new signees yeah from wc uh, from wwf or the 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 guys that are new malenko chris jericho eddie guerrero those types oh of course and nwo was always big long interviews 20 minute interviews Mm -hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. They rarely wrestled on on TV. Anyhow, that, that those were the, uh, the the Ultimate Dragons traveling time every week from you know from Mexico to Monday wherever the Monday Nitro TV taping was you know located that uh, he travels. Then he was uh, traveling back and forth WAR Japan to WCW. And when WAR went out of business, he was full time was. Um, WCW too, but that was around the time that uh, the first um, trainee, uh, his name was Magnum Tokyo. Okay, that mm-hmm. uh, I I spoke with Ultimate Dragon at the time that he was saying that no, I'm not gonna have any like a trainee or disciple. That was my way of you know because he he never said he did, didn't want to train. Japanese wrestler or have something something like wrestling school, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, he insists No, I'm not training anybody. I'm not training anybody. Right. But the uh, Magnum Tokyo guy that he insisted that he started, you know, d- you know driving him around like a chauffeur. And uh, he's like, no, and he's like, he didn't want anybody, I mean, really to train, but the uh, Magnum Tokyo insisted that he would be trained. Then three other guys came along, Sima and uh, Sumo Fuji and Judo Sua, if you remember. Those are the the very founding member of original Toriumon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They so they you know Asai finally uh, Ultimate Dragon rather he finally decided to take you know three guys four guys altogether then Magnum Tokyo Sima and that the Sumo Fuji and Judo Sua that uh, okay we'll train only four guys then uh, after that a few months after that uh, Dragon Kid joined in Mexico who was referee of FMW at the time did you know that. Didn't know he was a referee, but he was a pretty small guy. Is pretty small yeah. guy. Now that he dressed just like Ultimate Dragon, the same mm. mask, the same costume, a Dragon Kid. But he's been doing that for 20 years now. But uh, yes, those one, two, three, four, five, all together, this is it. That's it. And he didn't want to train any other. Then pretty soon, guys start showing up, you know, wanted to, you know, come to Mexico and train under them. And all of a sudden, um, that the, he wasn't planning on it, but uh, he had to open the school called Wrestling School Toriumon uh, in Mexico. Then all of a sudden you have 20 guys training under him. Then you had the coach like Negro Navarro and uh, Gran Apache, because uh, 
Ultimate Dragon himself, as an active wrestler, he still traveled. And uh, you needed full-time coach. So you had the ne- people like Negro Navarro and, and, and the Grand Apache, the real veterans there, that the, he trained, start training Japanese trainees. And to make long story short, um, between then and now, that uh, 20 I mean, 20th span, I think, I, I couldn't count, but... Uh, Ultimate, Ultimate Dragon debuted at least 150 wrestlers. It's not amazing. Yeah, I mean, I got a bunch of you know guys from the working for Z. Well, among that, you have Kazuchika Okada or people like Taiji Ishimori, you know, in there. That uh, teenage Okada, you know, teenage Ishimori or teenage Baramon Shu and Baramon K, you know, uh, all these all these interesting characters. They all came out of uh, Torimon. Then there's enough wrestlers after after they train 25 wrestlers. Where would you know should they work? You know the, the existing wrestling company like New Japan and All Japan and uh, other independent, they probably take one at a time, right? And uh, Torimon became company that run their own show in Japan. It was 98, 97, end of 97. Then yeah. Then you had a whole roster, yeah, yeah. But uh, after Torimon became company in a full-time wrestling company in Japan, and it was based in Kobe, not Tokyo, you know. But uh, uh, Ultimate Dragon st- still was an active wrestler, and he still traveled. And in nineties, at the same time, in ninety-eight, I believe, uh, in WCW match, he hurt his elbow you know left elbow um that the nerve and he they had a big operation surgery in in america and something happened and his nerve in 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 left elbow was permanently damaged did you know that yeah he had some kind of nerve damage from the operation yeah 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he thought that was it, you know, he was forced to retire, you know, because he's because of the, the permanent, you know, nerve damage in his his left elbow, his pinky and the fourth finger no longer moving, no movement, you know, I don't think it has changed, but he just learned how to work around it. That's another amazing story. But uh, he had the permanent damage in his elbow, therefore one or two of, of his finger not moving. And uh, well, I guess uh, he had to sue WCW for it. And then, uh, yeah. So he was retired for about four years until he decided to, you know, come back and he could do it. In the meantime, there was a, you know, this, uh, this, uh, dream that uh, Ultimate, Ultimate Dragon still haven't conquered. He's been to Japan, right? The New Japan, rest, you know, the, the Universal too, but the SWS. But the, after he became superstar and he had a program against people like Ultim- uh, Liger, therefore he headlined New Japan show. He's been to <clears throat> WCW. He's been to other places, but the only company he hasn't worked was WWE. Remember? Mm-hmm. So he finally signed a contract with WCW in 2003. And he was With asked, WWE? It, WWE, yeah. 2000, 2003. 2003. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Takamichi Noko was there. Funaki was there. Tajiri was there. Yeah. And uh, they were, they, uh, they, 
they asked around others. Jim Ross at the time was a talent relation, right? They asked, you know, is, is, is that going to be good to have Ultimate Dragon Asai uh, with us? And across the board, I mean, like all, university, everybody said, great to have Ultimate Dragon in WWE. Yeah. And that time, Chris Jericho pitched. It's not interesting, you know. Ten years before that, it was Ultimate Dragon who helped Chris Jericho, and ten years later, it was Chris Jericho who talked, you know, <clears throat> uh, spoke with Jim Ross, and you know, it would be great asset to have, yeah, uh, to have Ultimate Dragon in WWE roster. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it's that. Not, that's <clears throat> very interesting story, but WWE in reality wasn't ready for spot. I mean, like a big, huge program for Master Luchador, right? Mm. The it's debut not the place match you usually send, yeah, Luchador Junior Heavyweight style. It it wasn't. There was a place for it, but it was still Vince WWE. McMahon himself is not a big fan of masked masked wrestler or smaller wrestler. Then they already had Rey Mysterio, and Rey Mysterio was the only one that, that does a Superman, I mean, small Superman doing a Superman match against big guys. That uh, Rey Mysterio was supposed to have always have match against much bigger guys, right? And he had his role, he had his spot, and Rey Mysterio was already world heavyweight champion. And uh, it just kind of almost like an image and a character almost overlaps that you don't need two Mexican, um, Japanese though, but the luchador, the full mask costume guy, too similar, right, for WWE taste. So he was there just 2003 and 2004. But uh, yeah. Uh, all in all, he had the Ultimate Dragon, as he dreamed, he had, uh, you know, one year, uh, almost two year run with, with WWE too. So that was under his resume. That was, he was so conscious about it, you know, because WCW and WWE had, had contracts with both. He had to do it. He, he felt like doing it. Yeah, it was for and, his and, uh, legacy. <clears throat> Yeah, someplace that he hasn't been. Yeah, because Keiji Muto felt the same way that uh, the only place he hasn't been is WWE. You know, he he has somewhat, you know, feel that he missed out on something. Yeah. I mean, if you want to work every single major company in the world, yes. Sure. Ultimate Dragon felt the same way, you know. And uh, in the meantime, that uh, Toru Mon was run by a, a group of people that they almost didn't need Ultimate Dragon because they were running their own full-time schedule with full-time wrestlers. And uh, Dragon, you know, that the Toru Mon changed name into Dragon Gate. That existed today, yeah. So the connection between Toru Mon and Dragon Gate kind of went to separate way. And Ultimate Dragon wouldn't return to Dragon Gate Ring till 2019. Yeah. Some people felt that he was kicked out of the company, but uh, it was like just the agreement that uh, he was never there anymore. And also, he couldn't work with your trainees. Would you? You know what I'm saying? I mean, by that point, the pace was getting faster and faster, especially with that group. Yeah, with the guys that are 10, 15 years younger than you are and a bunch of guys who you trained, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, that's like he probably wouldn't be too comfortable, you know. Yeah. But uh, Ultimate Dragon has always been on his own. That, yeah, he is like, uh, 
are very independent, you know. He doesn't actually socialize with other wrestlers all that much. You know, he's always on his own, you know. And uh, that's what superstars are, I guess. And uh, he is still is the world traveler. And we talked about his Italian fashion and uh, Cuban cigar and uh, all the his, you know, the wardrobe that he wears. And uh, yeah, that, that that's a lifestyle of, of what he learned from probably Mil Maskers and El Santo or somebody, right? It's yeah, he he's living the living the lifestyle of a legendary luchador. It's, yeah, it's funny you say that he's always kind of on his own. I remember I saw him once. The first time I saw him in person was years ago. It was just at a house show at All Japan. It was in the afternoon at Cork and Hall, and he was on. Oh, okay, of- right. He did work. Started working All Japan in recent years, and he did win the World Junior Heavyweight Title there. Mm-hmm. Another, you know item that he was going to going to conquer because he got the IWGP uh, the junior heavyweight title he got the NWA world heavy, junior heavyweight title and every single you know junior heavyweight title that there was and the only title he hasn't won was all Japan version of world junior heavyweight title and he won it from Tajiri another interesting you know meetup yeah Mm. It was Tajiri's dream match, uh, too, you know, to have single match, <clears throat> title match program against Ultimate Dragon on bigger stage. And uh, these dreams, I mean, with these wrestlers would come true in one by one. You know, these are very interesting, you know, story. I mean, everybody's story kind of overlaps with one, one, one another. Ultimate Dragon story to Jado Gedo to Takamichinoku to uh, Chris Jericho to Rey Mysterio to uh, Tajiri to... Yeah, all, isn't that interesting? I mean, these, these people don't work in the same company, but they cross paths, you know? And it's interesting to see that at the base of all of it, at the root is often Ultimate Dragon... And before that, there weren't many, uh, I guess you could call them like connectors or, or liaison kind of with people yeah, with liaison then he, the, the interesting thing was that he wasn't even planning on doing it. There right. were similar type guys. He was the only so one talented. who could do it, which is why I think that's why he had to do it. He was the only yeah. one. And it was uh, only him. there was a friendship, you know, and then and, and the camaraderies and then uh, they're all wrestlers and uh, similar body style, you know, I mean, like a size, you know, not big guy, tall guy, you know, lighter guy, but they were all genuinely so talented that, you know, they've been told it's big man's business. And said, uh, 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 we'll make it, we'll make it. Right. And they did. Yeah. It's a very interesting story. And part two, yeah. Hmm. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just gonna say part two. I mean, we we have to talk about um, more recent the, ones, the generations of, of people he's trained and and where they're at. I mean, a lot of the most yeah popular yeah. yeah. So it's like we learn, you know, that the Japanese wrestling history and Mexican wrestling history and American wrestling history, the junior heavyweight or cruiserweight lighter. Um, the, the division of it and it was uh, it, it also influenced american independent scenes too oh absolutely yeah because when somebody like uh 
Brian Danielson debuted, he they put the mask on him, called him American Dragon. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Where did this dragon come from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was he was sort of like a, an icon for that junior heavyweight style and and, yeah, and the real trailblazer wrestling. Yep. Yeah. And he mm -hmm. represented it at, at quite literally everywhere he could. Mexico, Japan, U.S., Europe. He's all over. And it's, yeah, he's... and also very first Japanese wrestling school. And it's always been dojo system in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Either you go to audition and pass the audition, you know, 50 to 100 guys go try out and maybe five guys will be picked for the year's rookie. And uh, maybe, you know, five years start training, you know, five guys, seven guys, six, seven guys start training, maybe three or four more make it. You know what I mean? Mm hmm but he was wrestling school type system that, that uh, I guess 90s wrestlers or millennium rookies didn't really want to go to, you know, New Japan Dojo or Old Japan Dojo and they shave your head and do the slave life <laughs> style, young lion style for three years, right? Mm. Yeah, so different mentality then too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different world. There are different options right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are kids but, growing uh, up with uh, looking at guys like Ultimo Dragon, <clears throat> like like they're legends, like not not like we look at them like almost you know they're they're active uh, players in the industry. But I mean, I think younger people will and already do start. To, they see him like, uh, wow, he like the ult the ultimate Ultimo Dragon, the the one of the most important figures. They can see that. Yeah, and then you, th you then you think about this Kazuchika Okada, today's the biggest superstar, right? In, in, not yeah, in yeah. Not, not just in Japan, but probably like a biggest one of the biggest superstar in today's wrestling world. Kazuchika Okada, right out of ninth grade, he didn't even finish high school. And fifteen year old Kazuchika Okada went straight to straight to Mexico and joined Toriumon. Oh, the story wow. the story sounds similar to Ultimo Dragons. A, mm -hmm, a young, mm -hmm. a young guy eager to start wrestling, doesn't finish school, goes to Mexico of all places, ex-track star, switching to pro wrestler and making a huge impact at a young age. Yeah, going yeah, all over the world. Sick. So, Ultimate Dragon's legacy has been almost overlooked. That was him who was responsible. Of fitness, you know, that the the foundation and a standard, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's active still, so it's hard. I think it's hard for people to imagine, you know, thinking about him like that because just a couple months ago he was wrestling Pentagon and AAA at their Triple Mania. Uh, right, right. So, and he, he looks at, at, like his body and his masks. It looks pretty similar to how he pretty much the, the same that's, that's what the costumes do and that makes him more of a superhero type yeah yeah ray mysterio the liger they grew older inside that mask we don't know that uh, the, the, the costume are the same right mm. so we assume they are the same but they do age inside that mask yeah Ultimate Dragon the same way. So the part two, uh, uh, I love to talk about 
Ultima Dragon 1992 and Ultima Dragon 2022. He still wrestles, but what he does in the ring is slightly different. He doesn't even fly. He doesn't even have any flying uh, that uh, that uh, move. That, that he does the. He's introducing his jabe. You call it that, that's a Spanish. You know that the mat wrestling the jabe that uh, he does all kinds of really original looking submission on the mat. You know, it's just as entertaining as when he was flying. And we'll talk about that today's because his legacy remains and there's more uh, to Ultimate Dragon, you know, to come. Mm. Yeah, that style you described, Yave style, if, if there are any listeners out there who watch New Japan and aren't familiar, this is the style that Okada will <clears throat> often use when he does submissions. He'll use this Mexican Yave style submission just like Ultimo Dragon did. Right. Submission style, but not Karo Gachi Malenko school style, UWF style. But it's like more of a, what do you call it, a ting- tingling or, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, a yeah. M- more Nuts. flashy looking, uh, like, like the surfboard maneuver, the Romero special. Or like a jigsaw puzzle a bit. Sure. Just yeah, uh, yeah. Interesting body stretches. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just introducing that, and also Ultimate Dragon is still Ultimate Dragon, you know. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that uh, on on the part two. All right. So before we go, if we if anybody wants to reach out to us, Fumi, where can we reach you? On Twitter at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O at Fumihiko Dayo, or just Fumi Saito on Facebook. Please message me first. And I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R on Twitter. If you want to reach out, let us know. If you have questions, let us know. So until next time. So long from Tokyo. Tokyo.